1: All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Pretty. Uh, we are just so grateful for the chance to get together like this and study your Word together. We just pray that we, you'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your Law, and you'd have us hear and learn what you what you would have for us today. In your name, we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Today we're going to talk about First and Second Thessalonians, and First and Second Thessalonians are fascinating to me because they take, these two books, they take two concepts and put them together. Paul talks about two concepts, both in 1st Thessalonians and in 2nd Thessalonians, two concepts that seemingly have nothing to do with each other. And he puts them together, and he mentions them both. In 1st Thess and 2nd Thess, these two concepts come out, and maybe it's just coincidence, but maybe they have something to do with each other. These two concepts are the second coming of Christ and work the end of the world, and your job. So maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe those are two things on Paul's mind. Maybe there are two things that Thessalonians needed to hear. But he brings them up both times. And so that's what we want to talk about today and to see if there's any relationship between those two things, the second coming of Christ and work. And what we're going to do today uh, is primarily focus on the whole concept of work. And I want to do that because... I want to do this in particular because we rarely talk about this in the church. We talk about all kinds of things in the church. We talk about coming to Christ. We talk about your salvation. We talk about how to grow in Christ, holy living, sanctification. We talk about family. We talk about how to deal with suffering. We talk about all kinds of things, but we rarely talk about the whole concept of work. And I think that's because there are basically three different views of work within the Christian church. And I don't mean our church, this one in particular, I mean in the Christian church, three different views of work. There are probably more, but these are the three that I think of in my conceptualization. Three different views of work. First is that work is worthless. Your work is worthless. It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Look, there are only two things that you come in contact with in this world that are going to last forever. And you're actually in contact with in most of you, this morning. The Word of God and people. Those are the only two things that are going to last. Everything else around you is going to burn. Why are you wasting your time on worthless things? Your job as a contractor or uh, your carpentry. If you're a real estate developer and you're building apartments, why are you wasting your time? The only thing that's going to last is the word of God and people, right? Everything else you're doing, if you're not in, in ministry, is worthless. Now, that's kind of a minority view. I don't think that's the majority view in our world. But it's still prevalent. I'll give you a short story. We uh, support this missionary and we love her. She's great. She does great work. And she was over our house. She was fundraising. We support her. We continue to support her. But she was over our house fundraising and she kept saying, you know, missions. Missions are just at the heart of God. Missions are at the heart of God. At the heart of God, missions. She just, as a phrase, look, she was fundraising, so I can't blame her. So she just kept saying this. And later in the evening, you know what you find when you peer into the heart of God? Missions. Because missions are right at the heart of God. They're just the heart of God is missions. And about halfway through dinner, she looked up from her plate and she said, oh, uh, Jim, how's work going for you? And I said what I think any rational person would have said at that moment. I said, it's fine. It's fine. And in my mind, I'm thinking, but it's obviously not at the heart of God, is it? Right? It's just work. Even she would not say this, this, this view. I think this is a little bit of an extreme view, but I think it's still out there. It was definitely the dominant view in the Middle Ages, and we'll come back to that. The second view is work is tolerated. It's okay. It's okay. It's tolerated. You know, Colossians three twenty three. Whatever you do, do your work is for the Lord and not for men, right? But the, the purpose of your work is to win souls for Christ. It's a platform for evangelism and to make money so that you can support missions because they are at the heart of God, right? So go to work. And if you say, Well, I'm going in this certain field, I'm gonna do this kind of engineering this field, people would say, Oh, that's great because we need Christians there to witness to people at the job, on the job, right? So so the purpose of your work is to save souls for the lost, do evangelism on, on the job, and make money so you can support the church. But make no mistake, even in this view, the work itself that you're doing, the actual substance of the work you're doing, is still worthless. But it has a purpose. Save souls, make money, give to the church. There is a corollary to this or a subcategory, a little carve out for those of you who are in the helping professions. That's that's better. That's okay. So if you're a medicine, if you're a first responder, you're maybe a teacher, you're a social worker, you know, you are directly helping people, that's good. But if you're a carpenter, you work at a factory, sorry. Right? Be- we're helping people directly, we can see. But all this other stuff here in accounting, banking, banking, forget about it. The third view is that your work itself, the substance of your work itself is worthwhile. And the point I want to explore today is could this even possibly be true? Is it possible that the work itself that you're doing, the actual substance of the work is actually worthwhile? Dorothy Sayers had an essay she wrote shortly after World War II. It's still relevant today. It was called Why Work? And she says this. She said, that nothing has a church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the so-called secular vocation." The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments, and therefore the church is astonished that work in the world has been turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and that many have become con- disinterested in religion. But is this astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion or faith that has no concern for nine-tenths of his or her life? I've been going to church for 40 years, more than that. And in all that time, we talked about the world of work and what you do in the secular vocation less than a dozen times. So I want to spend like this next hour that we have really talking about this concept of work. And what I'm going to do today, I'll tell you what we're going to cover today. I'm going to give you a very brief overview of first and second Thessalonians. It's going to be the briefest overview of a book of the Bible, two books of the Bible that the men of the word Bible study has ever seen in the last 20 years. Three to five minutes like that. We'll go quick overview of the, of the, of the first and second fast. Then I'm gonna talk about the second coming, spend some time on that. And then we'll talk about work. Okay? So, uh, and then a couple of program notes. Uh, I have an appendix to this that gives a more fulsome outline of first and second, second Thessalonians. Maybe we can post that later, get a PDF out to everybody. It also references some resources. Tim Keller, actually, who usually I gather a lot of inspiration from when I look at these things and talk to you guys. He has six sermons on work. They're all available free. You'll have some place where you can go get those if you want for, to do further research on this. He also has written a book called Every Good Endeavor. A lot of what I'm going to say comes from some of those thoughts, but not everything. You'll see there's a bunch of other thoughts that I've drawn from that are put together here. And then there's some of my own thoughts as well. So that actually the truly bad stuff is from me and you can reject all that. So that's just because there's some uh, program notes. Uh, and then one other thing, I got to say this before I go on. I was practicing for this talk, and uh, talking about work. And my wife said, you know, you sound a little angry. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, I probably do. It's <laughs> so a little a little edgy. You may have already sensed this tone already. Okay. So I got to confess and apologize for that. I don't mean to be that way. Greg and I talked about this a lot. But Greg, you probably pick up on that already. I don't mean to be that way. And I want to, so I really got to say, first of all, the, 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 those of you who are in full-time Christian work, and I say Greg, Marius, Pastor Jim, the Lord has called in a full-time work. We got to applaud what they do and say, we're grateful for what the Lord is doing in their lives. Okay. So we to make sure we're very clear about that. We all appreciate that. So if I sound a little edgy talking about this topic, please forgive me. I'm working on it. Really. I am. Okay. Here's your overview. Thessalonica. When Paul was ministering at the time of Thessalonica, it was a town of about 200,000 people. It was five times the size of Jerusalem. It was a city of commerce and business. It was because of where it was located geographically on prominent trade routes. So for Paul, who would have been ministering in Jerusalem when he came here, this was like coming to the big city. He came there. He spoke for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. You can read about it in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17. And then he left. He was chased out of town. So he was worried about the church. He sent back Timothy. Timothy comes back and gives him a report. He says, actually, the church is doing pretty well. They're thriving, but they are suffering persecution. And they do have a bunch of questions, notably about the second coming. So Paul writes 1st Thessalonians. Most scholars think it's the first epistle that he wrote. He probably wrote it from Corinth. There's some dispute about that, but most people say this is the first epistle that he wrote, and then shortly thereafter, like within a year or two, he writes them another letter, 2nd Thessalonians. Now, here is the outline, quick overview of 1st Thessalonians and and 2nd Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, the first section is really a celebration of faithfulness and connectedness. Paul comes by and he says, I'm so glad that you guys received the gospel, that you're doing so well. And in fact, he uses both maternal and paternal metaphors to talk about his fond affection for them. In chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he uses a paternal metaphor, and he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. So this incredible sense of connectedness that he has with them, even after having spent three weeks with them. And then this wonderful verse, chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? He says, when I look forward to heaven, I look forward to crowns in heaven, I look forward to my reward. You know what that is? It's you. You're going to be there with me. God's used me in the ministry to help you in Christ, and you're going to be there with me, worshiping him forever. You are my joy. You are my crown. You are my reward. This incredible connectedness and bodilyness, so celebration of faithfulness, that's the first part. And in this first part, the first three chapters of first Thess, the word gospel shows up six times. And this is an important message that Paul does where he, he gets the sequence of the gospel and is communicating the sequence of the gospel. And the sequence of the gospel is massively important because what he says is you've got the gospel, you heard the gospel, you responded to the gospel. And the gospel message is salvation is received and not earned. He received it as the free gift. Then in chapter four, he starts talking about holy living. Here's what you need to do. If he had started First Thessalonians with chapter four, Christianity would sound like a very different religion. It would be a list of do's and don'ts. And as Greg said so well a couple of weeks ago, all the other religions are about do. Christianity is about die. And so the gospel comes across. You got the gospel now. now that you know the gospel, though, there are some things you need to focus on, things that need to change in your life. So the gospel comes out. Second part is a challenge to grow. It talks about sexual purity, which we won't talk about at all today, and work, which we will talk about. And then the day of the Lord. This is where he says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And I, I'll get this out. I just uh, heard one commentator on this. It was really good. He said, when Paul talks about, you know, it's going to come like a thief in the night and when it's going to come, he said, all these verses about the second coming are really not here to fill out your calendar. They're here for your character. And you know, I thought that was just fantastic. They're not here so you can try to figure out when is he coming back? God has already promised you can't know that. They're here for your character and also for your comfort. And then 2 Thessalonians Here's a quick outline. Hope despite persecution. The church was suffering, and so Paul gives some words of hope for them as they go through their persecution. And then he goes, talks about the day of the Lord again, the second coming. And this time it's a little different because the church had been told by false teachers that Jesus had already come back. And you missed it. You've been left behind. And Paul addresses that and says, you haven't been left behind. He has not returned. When he returns, there will be all kinds of signs. You won't miss it. Don't worry. He has not come back. And then again, a challenge to the idol, a long section on work and the importance of work. Okay, that's your overview in about five minutes. Now, the second coming, let's read some passages. Rex, could you read for me first? You can read from the screen
0: or from your Bible. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's great. Thank you. And uh, Ray, if you could read this next one now as to the times and the epochs brethren you have to no need of anything to be written to you for you yourselves know full well that the day of the lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape thank you ray
1: Second coming, the end times. I already made one confession to you in this talk. I want to make a second confession to you is that when I was a young Christian, I became a Christian in the seventies. That was the age of Hal Lindsey and the Lake Ray Planet Earth, the Left Behind series, all this stuff. I love this eschatology stuff. Study the end times, the millennium, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib, three-quarter trib. I loved all that stuff. And I really want, you know, want to figure it all out and look for the signs of the times. And then I finally said, you know what? God has promised. You cannot know. And so I became a very devout pan-millennialist. And that's been my standard joke ever since then. It'll all pan out in the end. I avoid this topic. I've for the last decades, I avoid this topic like the plague. I said, look, at the end of time, I'm going to be with Jesus. That's the promise. He's going to take me home. We'll be together in heaven. We'll be floating in the clouds. We'll be playing a harp. It'll be like endless choir practice for the all millennium. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm happy about that. I'll just be with him and I don't need to figure all this stuff out. So being a devout pan millennialist, it maybe was not the right idea. and Maybe it was not such a good thing because in preparing for this talk, I actually found this statistic that the second coming of Christ is mentioned 300 times in the new Testament. It's like every 16 verses, the whole idea of the second coming of Christ is a big part of the Christian faith. And I think my attitude being a pan-millennialist thing, I don't want to talk about it. It was a little dismissive of all that. So there are some things to be gained. Now, what I don't want to talk about today, we won't talk about today, is this whole pre-trip, post-trip, millennial stuff. Jim Love actually talked about that a couple of months ago. And then Dr. Bob's going to talk about Revelation coming up. So plenty of time to talk about that stuff. But today I want to talk about what does the afterlife look like and what is our hope? And think about how that relates to the world of work. So with that in mind, a couple verses. The afterlife, the way it's described in the Bible, seems to describe a very physical future, not the floating on clouds playing harp thing I was envisioning. And if you look, for example, at Isaiah 65, it starts in the Old Testament and carries over to the New Testament. Isaiah 65 talks about a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, 17 and verse 12, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Sounds like a physical activity in the afterlife, building houses, planting vineyards, agricultural activity. It's Isaiah 60, Isaiah 60 and so on its own is just fascinating. It's a whole depiction of the, of, the, of the afterlife and the future. And in Isaiah 60, Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem and all the nations of the world are bringing their wealth to him. And it actually says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish. Tarshish is Spain. So there's a reference to some geographical place called Spain in the afterlife. Maybe it's purely metaphorical. It's pure allegory. But it seems very geographical and physical. The nations, if you read Isaiah 60, are bringing all their wealth, gold and silver. So ostensibly, they're mining gold and silver. They're bringing their flocks and herds. So there's still you know, dealing with livestock. Maybe again, maybe pure allegory, but it seems to describe a physical future. Psalm 2, I've read this a thousand times. I don't know why I didn't see this before. This is the, the psalm that says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Right. So we we kind of know it for that. But in Psalm 2, you are my son, the father talking to son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Again, it sounds like a physical future with nations. And if you're describing nations in the afterlife, that means there's cultural identity in the afterlife. be all christians but you might still have a cultural identity even in the afterlife and then of course revelation 21 then i saw a new heaven a new earth a reference back to the isaiah 55 passage for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea and i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god made ready as a bride adorned for her husband Verses rich with meaning but this whole idea of the new jerusalem coming down to earth i mean i always thought god was going to come and take me home take me out of this earth some place in the clouds. This is a little different. This sounds like the end of time, the new Jerusalem is God coming down out of a new heaven to a new earth. What does all this mean? Oh, one more thing. I don't have them listed for you here, but in the New Testament, there are six references to eating and drinking in the New Kingdom. So, for, for example, this is where Jesus says this cup, I will, not, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in the New Kingdom. Right? References to what seems like physical activity. So, Two views on what this means. Two views on the new heaven and new earth. One is that it's all going to burn up and be completely destroyed. And there'll be then a new earth that's created ex nihilo, out of nothing. And this comes from Second Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. There it is. It's all going to be burned up right there. But according to his right promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. Another reference to new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So why are we talking about this? If you remember that first view of work that I gave you when I was giving the three views of work, it's all driven by this idea from from second uh, Peter. It's all going to burn. In other words, What's the connection between the end of the world and your work? some of you probably caught this, but in that first view of work, when you say, why are you wasting your time with work? It's all going to burn. That entire view of work is all eschatological. It's driven by your whole idea of what's going to happen at the end of time. And if you say at the end of time, it'll all be burned up. The only thing that's going to last is God and people, why are you wasting your time building tables and chairs or your carpentry when it's all going to burn? That whole view of your secular vocation is driven by your eschatology. So they're completely connected. And that view comes from Basically, this passage says it's all going to burn up, but there's another view and that this whole earth, everything around you is going to be redeemed and restored. I'm not sure that this is the majority view in the Christian church, but it's interesting. I'm not sure about it, but I'm going to present it to you today for your consideration. Okay, it comes from verses like this, Matthew 19, 28, when Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the palingenesia, when the son of man will come and sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So first of all, there's a reference to to some kind of hierarchy or rulership structure in the new heavens and new earth, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jesus refers to it as a regeneration, a palingenesia. And the word would have been familiar to the listeners at the time. It's a word that only appears twice in the New Testament. It's a word that is—it comes out of Greek philosophy, and their their philosophy was that all history was cyclical in nature, that every once in a while everything got kind of out of whack, and there would be a great purging by fire, and it would all be reborn. And then the whole thing would start all over again. It would all get out of whack, and all be a great purging by fire and reborn. And so Jesus said, "When I come back and sit on my throne, there's going to be a palingenesia. The listener would have said, "Whoa!" So it's true. There is going to be a palingenesia, but not an endless cycle of palingenesia is one focal point to which all of history is going. What The palingenesia of all things. Now, I I probably don't have time for this, but I just want to, it's it's so cool. I got to mention to you, the the word palingenesia comes up one other time in the New Testament. It's in Titus 3, 5, and 6. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but by the washing of re- regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Just fascinating. So he says the power that's going to come when I sit on my glorious throne and rule over all things is going to regenerate the entire creation. That is the power that comes into your heart and your life when you become a Christian. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fantastic? That's what's happened to us when we accepted Christ. That power, the power in that comes into your heart. That was just an aside. Jesus talks about the palantinousia when he comes again. In Romans 8, Paul writes, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself, this is verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So all of creation subjected to slavery, subjected to corruption because of the fall. And Paul writes in Romans 8, it says someday it's all going to be free from that. That doesn't sound like obliteration. It doesn't say, well, you know, all of this creation was subject to slavery, so God's just going to obliterate it and destroy it. It says it'll be set free from its corruption. That sounds like something different than utter and total destruction. T. Wright writes about this, and his view is that Jesus is both the model and the means for making this happen. Jesus is the model for redeeming us, and the model Jesus gave us is his resurrected body. So so the idea here is that the, the example that we have in all of history for what the afterlife looks like is Jesus after the resurrection. He came back and had a glorified body that was physical. He ate fish, but it was glorified. It had different physical properties. He could walk through walls. Right, But but, but it was physical. In Luke 24, 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see I have. So in his glorified body, Jesus had flesh and bones. That's the model. And so for us, if you apply to us in Philippians 3, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So the glorified body Jesus has, that's our future physical body, flesh and bones, but a glorified body without all the aches and pains, right? That's what's waiting for us. But the idea here that goes beyond that is that his resurrection is also not just redeeming us, but redeeming all of creation. And it comes from verses like this, Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So this view, for your consideration, is that the the power of the cross, the redemptive power of the cross, was not just to save human beings' souls, the Christians' Right. But also to read the power is so powerful. It was there to redeem all of creation. And if you look ahead to uh, how that applies to creation, it's in acts three verses like this, this is acts three verses 19 through 21. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Fascinating here, verse 21, it's like there's two time periods there are talked about. There's a time period where Jesus is, is ascended, He's, he was uh, after He ascended into heaven, in heaven, and then another time period that happens with the restoration of all things. But this doesn't sound like the burn it all up viewpoint. This sounds like, His redemptive power is going to restore all things. Now, you might say, I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure about it either. But let's look at some prominent people who do adhere to this viewpoint. One of these people is Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book called Heaven. There are like 9 million copies sold. I imagine some people in this room have read this book. Randy Alcorn says this, as we have seen in a number of passages that use words such as renewal and regeneration, the same earth destined for destruction is also destined for restoration. Many have grasped the first teaching, but not the second. Therefore, they misinterpret words such as destroy to mean absolute or final destruction rather than what scripture actually teaches, a temporary destruction that is reversed through resurrection and restoration. And he quotes Anthony Hokima, who was a professor of theology at Calvin Theological Seminary, who's since passed away. He says, if God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it, but to blot it totally out of existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimensions of that Defeat when he shall renew this very earth, in which Satan deceived mankind and finally banished from it the results of Satan's evil machinations. So, in short summary, what he's saying is if you believe that this entire earth is just going to be burned up, then Satan wins. So, God says, Look, I created this earth. I put Adam and Eve on this earth to cultivate the earth, to have this paradise on earth. Oh, shoot, they sin. Well, in that case, I'll just burn the whole thing up. I guess it didn't work out. Satan wins. And what he's saying is, no, Satan's not going to win. God's going to restore this creation. A couple more for you. You say, I've never heard of Anthony Hakema, but many of you heard of John Piper. John Piper argues that God did not create matter to throw it away. He writes, when Revelation 21 verse 1 and 2 Peter 3 verse 10 say that the present earth and heavens will pass away, it does not have to mean that they will go out of existence, but may mean that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. There is a real passing away and there is a real continuity, a real connection. And then someone else you may have heard of, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that was a preacher in London. Tim Keller often quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, everything will be glorified, even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the internal state. That what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live it. Men and women are meant to live in the body, and we will live in a glorified body, in a glorified world, and God will be with them. So what does this mean? If this is true, that means this present earth, God is going to recreate and, and, and redeem. Don't know exactly what that means. Don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Because you might say, well, what does it mean when Jesus had a glorified body? Did his DNA... Reconfigured? Did the molecular structure of his body change when he, has, he talks about that? We don't know. God doesn't describe that. We don't need to know that stuff. But he's saying, if, if this entire present world is restored, it puts a whole new meaning on verses like, do your work for the Lord and not for men? So if you are a real estate developer and you are developing apartment buildings and you say, I'm developing this apartment building, and I've been told at church, do you work for the Lord, and not for men? That means I should do my work hard. I should be honest and do it with integrity. I should witness to people at work and I should make my money and give it to the church, right? That's what it means. But you might say, I'm going to finish this apartment building on Tuesday and the Lord might come back on Wednesday, which literally would mean that apartment complex would be part of his kingdom, which puts a whole, if that's true, I'm not sure that it's true. But if it is true, that means it puts a whole new spin on do your work for the Lord and not for men. Look, if you're an engineer, if you're a civil engineer and you're designing this bridge, you say, I'm going to design this bridge over this river. And it's going to have this beautiful arc that spans this river and bears the weight. And I'm going to make it beautiful because this bridge just might be part of his kingdom. I'm doing my work for the Lord and not for men. Puts a totally different spin on doing your work. It just might be part of his kingdom. And look, and if it's not, if it's the other view, it says, no, 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 you don't understand. All this is going to be burned up completely. A new heaven, new earth, something totally different. God at least will say, look, in the new heavens, I promise you, we're going to build homes and live with them. So you're a real estate developer who built those apartment complexes. I love the way you did that. I love the way you did manage that project. I've got a ton of mansions to build. Come with me. It's a very different view of the value of your work in the next life. So, So what? So what? What's the connection between this physical future and our work? Implications for work. Implications for work about this whole view of the uh, new heaven and new earth first of all a contrast in eastern philosophy actually i should just stop there for a second any questions or comments on this so far anyone any questions or comments i should just take a pause here yeah
0: over here there seems to be some additional support for this now that i'm thinking about it in the way that god destroys all the land, at least in the creatures on the earth, when he uh, has Noah build the ark, and then promises not to do it again. Right. I mean, uh, the, the apparent view of that is that he promises not to destroy people again. But I'm not sure that's what it actually says, right? He promises not to cause that kind of calamity again. So that would, again, support the view that what he created on the earth wouldn't be entirely annihilated again.
1: Yeah, thanks for the comment. And I, I, I'm glad you brought up the whole idea of the flood and the rainbow, because I've often thought when we see the rainbow, it's the most underappreciated promise in Christianity because there's so much sin in the world, right? Whenever I see a rainbow, I think, I can't believe, you know, just come back and burn this whole place up right now. And the promise that he says, I'm not going to do that despite all the sin in the world. I'm not going
0: to bring the flood back and do that.
1: Just the most amazing promise. We had another comment.
0: Yeah, a couple quick points. When you talk about work, and I know we're going to get more into it. But one of the things the scriptures in the Bible says that your work will be tried by fire. And if it survives, you'll get a crown. So our work is always to be to God, regardless of what the results are going to be. Secondarily, the, you are correct, we do not know the times of the day, but he says we should know the season. And I think prophetically in the last 100 years, so much has happened prior to this, first, this last 100 years, that more things prophetically are coming true more and more and more. And it's a very interesting time frame so we should know those times hmm. and when we definitely are in those times the end of the end times the third question i have is that when you were mentioning isaiah to whom was isaiah speaking to was he speaking to the jews or was he speaking to the christians because it really makes a difference in the word to what group of people he, that he's speaking to and sometimes we try to confuse that by like, if it's written to the Jews, we assume that it's written to us, the Christians, when it's right. not. Right. So right. in the physical sense, I believe that the Jews will be here after the, the tribulation period and repopulate the earth. Yes. Yeah.
1: What, good point. You take verses like uh, Jeremiah he says, I know the plans for you declares the Lord plans well for an offer calamity. And he's speaking to the Jews and we appropriate that verse for ourselves, so he knows me personally knows the plans. So there's a question of what does that verse really apply to me? But I do think when he's talking about the new heavens and new earth, he's talking about something for everybody, not just for the Jews. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com
0: Stay tuned for our next episode and remember On your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See
1: you next time.